This morning I titled my message, Our Communion, and it's Our Communion in Him. Uh, we have communion with Christ. Going to continue in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're all the way to chapter 10 already. Seems like we just started. But chapter 10, we're going to read from verses 12 through 22 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has ever taken you except such as is common, with, common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the tempta temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the, the blood of Christ? The blood, the, I'm going to back up. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we through many are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of, of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then, that an idol is anything, or what is offered to an idol is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Let me repeat that. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? May God add His blessings to the hearing and the reading of His holy word. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we do thank You and praise You for Your presence. We thank You, Father, for the the blessed communion that we have with you. We thank you for the communion elements that reminds us of Christ, that reminds us of the, the blood that he shed, the body that was broken for us. And Father, help us to truly honor it, that and understand it and to respect it. And Lord God, may we truly only partake of the communion that is in Christ. Lord, I pray that your spirit will be upon us today, that you would touch our hearts, give us understanding and just bless us with peace and wisdom, and knowledge. And let us use it, Father, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Paul begins with a warning. A warning to those who think they stand. To tell them to be aware. Be aware, lest you fall. My friends, when we go before Christ, when we lay that crown at His feet, our righteousness is as filthy rags. It is His righteousness by which we are saved, not our own. Those who think they stand. You know, when we look at the, if you would look at the passages that precede this and even those that follow, there's some examples of the times that the nation of Israel fell. The nations turned their back on God. Paul shares the punishment that they had to endure because of their sins. There's an example, I actually didn't have it in my scripture, but in 1 Corinthians 10, I thought I had that marked, but it won't take me but a moment to find it. 
1 Corinthians 10 and verses 5 and 6. I will eventually find it. I keep turning too many pages. Paul says, But with most of them, speaking of the children of Israel, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our example to, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Just one little example, that their bodies perished in the wilderness because they turned their back on God. And Paul was sharing with the Corinthian church here that these things actually happen, that they are an example. He says to the New Testament church, they are an example for our admonition, warning them. It is a warning that they would not follow the same pattern that the nation of Israel followed. So friends, if that is a warning for the Corinthian church, it is also valid for us today that we would not follow the same way. You know, whenever families or children are younger and as they begin to grow, oftentimes the younger sibling will see the older sibling making some big mistakes and they see the punishment that they have to endure from mom and dad. So that younger one doesn't go down that same path. Now, oftentimes, not always, but sometimes we'll say, oh, look, what, I've seen what brother Bob did. I'm not going down that road. I'm going to walk the line a little bit better than he did. So he says, those who think they stand. Who are they? People that think they can stand before God in their own strength, in their own efforts, instead of relying on Christ, instead of relying on His righteousness. You know, it's when men or women are at their highest level of self-confidence that they're most likely to fall. Self-confidence. When we rely on our own self-confidence, watch out. Paul says, beware, lest you fall, because that's when you will fall. That person that thinks they're strong and high and mighty in their faith, who thinks that temptation could never touch them, my friends, how many, how many godly men and women have we seen in the past decade or two or three fall? How many nationally known pastors have we seen fall? They have given in to the greed, the lust, the idolatry or adultery. How many? I'm not going to name names, but we all know that there's quite a few that have fallen. They thought their faith was strong enough that that temptation would not get hold of them. But it did. Verse 13 said that no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. How can we bear it? How can we bear that temptation? By surrendering to God and not temptation. So one is surrendering. It's by prayer. It's by humbleness. It's by obedience. It's by discipline. All of these things. What is temptation? We have our ideas. Temptation is the seduction to evil. It is the solicitation to do wrong. Temptation is not the same thing as trials. 
So if a trial comes upon you, don't say I'm being tempted by God. Trials test seeks to discover a man or woman's moral qualities and character. And yes, God will at times allow us to endure various trials. But temptation persuades one to do evil. Does anybody here think that God will persuade one to do evil? Come on, please, shake your heads. Please, no. He will not. The one means to undeceive, and the one means to deceive. One aims at a man's good, making him conscious of his true moral self, but the other aims at his evil, leading one to unconsciously sin more. God tries, God does send trials, but friend, who sends the temptation? Satan. Exactly. In the Australian bush country, there's a little plant that grows there called the sundew plant. It has a slender stem and tiny little round leaves fringed with hairs that glisten with bright drops of liquid as delicate as fine dew. But woe to that insect that dares to dance and land on them leaves because it has very attractive clusters of red, white, and pink blossoms. They are harmless. But the leaves, however, are deadly. The shiny moisture on each leaf is sticky and it will imprison any bug that touches it. So as an insect lands on that leaf, as it tries to free itself, the leaf will vibrate and close up, entrapping, feeding upon its victim. Friends, how is temptation like that? Is temptation not like that sundew plant? Exactly like it. Because temptation is usually like those nice bright red, pink and white clusters. Very attractive to the eye, right? It's shiny. Ooh, look at that shiny thing. Someone said that the other day, a couple weeks ago. It attracts. Temptation is usually very pretty, very pleasing to the eye. But what happens when we walk away from God and land in that temptation? Just like that leaf, it's going to close up on you and it's going to feed on its victim. That's what temptation does. It feeds on its victim. So what are we to do? Pray. Run. Run. First, run from it. Run from it. So we should embrace trials, but we should resist. We should run from the temptations. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. In James 4.7. So how do we do this? How do we resist the devil? Well, in a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, Thomas Brooks offers ten ways that Christians can resist Satan's temptations. Number one, be ruled by the Word. Amen. Good advice. Be ruled by the Word of God. May the Word of God rule and be the authority in your life. It will keep you walking straight and guard you from all manner of temptation. When men throw off the Word of God, which I want to point in, put in here, Satan loves it when you put the Word of God aside and don't pay any attention to it. He loves it. And then Satan takes them by the hand and leads them into the snares of his pleasure. Number two, 
Beware of grieving the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that gives a Christian the ability to discern Satan's temptations and to see his hand in yeah, his hand in and behind life circumstances. If you grieve the Spirit, you will drive off the one whose ministry involves guarding you against Satan's attacks. Number three, labor for wisdom. There is a great difference between knowledge and wisdom, between accumulating facts and applying Scripture to those facts so that we become wise. It is not the Christian with the most knowledge, but the Christian with the most wisdom who is equipped to battle Satan's temptations. Number four, revis, re, yeah, I cannot talk this morning. Resist the first stirrings of temptation. The first stirrings. Friends, don't wait until you're sucked in. As soon as it comes, resist it. It is safe to resist temptation, but dangerous to dabble in it. He that will play with Satan's bait will quickly be taken with Satan's hook. God promises that we can resist temptation, not that we can resist sin once we have begun to dabble in that temptation. Number five, labor to be filled with the, with the Spirit. The Spirit is a spirit of light and power. The Spirit's light shines bright against the darkness of sin. And His power is sufficient to overcome all evil and temptation. When it comes to fighting Satan's temptation, it is better to have a heart filled with the Spirit than a head filled with facts. Number six, keep humble. A humble heart would rather lie in the dust than rise to prominence by sinful means. It would prefer to lose everything than to sin and be left with a guilty conscience. The humble person is neither drawn in by what Satan offers nor terrified by his threats. Number seven, be constantly on guard. A secure soul is a soul in a position to be led astray and ensnared. The soul that will not watch against temptation will certainly fall before the power of the temptation. Satan strengthens his assaults when the soul grows weary and drowsy. So be constantly on guard. Watchfulness is nothing else but the soul running up and down, to and fro, busy everywhere. It is the heart busied and employed with diligent observance of all observance of what comes from within and what comes from with, without us and into us. Number eight, continue communing with God. It is as you join in communion with God that He gives you strength to resist Satan's attacks. A soul high in communion with God may be tempted, but will not easily be conquered. Number nine, do not engage Satan in your own strength. How important. Do not engage Satan in your own strength. We must rely on Christ. Number ten, pray constantly. Prayer is a shelter to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to the devil. So pray and pray constantly. I think two of the most important. The first one was stay in the Word and pray. Satan loves it when we don't stay in the Word. And he loves it when we don't pray. I think that is our two greatest things to battle him with. Stay in the Word and pray. In the midst of Paul's warning about fleeing idolatry and not thinking of yourself above temptation, he speaks of communion. 
He speaks of the communion of the blood of Christ and the communion of the body of Christ. And you might wonder, well, how does communion fit into this passage about idolatry and the warning to flee from it? Communion, the Greek word is koinonia. Koinonia is the angelic, angelic station of a Greek word that means communion by intimate participation. It is fellowship. It identifies and realizes it is a state of fellowship. It's a state of community that should exist within the Christian church with one another and with God. The word is used frequently in the New Testament to describe the relationship within the early Christian church as well as the act of breaking bread in the manner in which Christ prescribed during the Passover meal. In Luke 22, 14-22, And when the hour had come, He sat down, and the twelve apostles with Him. Then He said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then He took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And He took the bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is My body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Likewise, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of My betrayer is with Me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Friends, Judas thought that he could have communion with Satan and with the Lord at the same time. He found out that you cannot. You know, it's interesting at times to study the different words and the different meanings. You know, in the passage in Luke, did you hear communion mentioned? No. It didn't say the word communion, but everyone that's a Christian knows that in this passage, Christ has instituted what we know as communion, the breaking of bread and, and the wine. Actually, when you look in the concordance, the Strong's Concordance in the King James Version, the word communion is only mentioned four times. Twice in 1 Corinthians and twice in 2 Corinthians. Communion, though, is according, you know, the koinonia means fellowship. It means intimate participation, intimate fellowship. In Acts 2.42, says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. You know, there are different levels of communion, different levels of fellowship, because let's think of communion as fellowship. There's different levels. You know, on one level, you might... Enjoy a gathering, you know, uh, co a gathering of co-workers. You know, we're going to break bread together. And you might have conversation. You know, you might talk about uh, your, your families. You might talk about sports. You might talk about things. There's, so that's one level of communion. You're breaking bread together. You're having fellowship. But then there's the communion of family. So I want to think about communion as we sit down to partake of a meal together as a family. I know this doesn't happen as much as it maybe used to or should, but a family, when they sit down together to enjoy a meal together, 
That is a time of communion. That is fellowship. It is a time for mom and dads to share with their children maybe some tidbits of knowledge or wisdom and understanding. It's a time for children to share with mom and dad uh, how their school week has been going, might share uh, how well they did on the test. They might share as they grow a little bit their hopes and aspirations of what they desire to do when they grow, when they are become an adult, you know, what their dreams and their hopes are. It can, it can and should be an intimate time of fellowship when you have a family sitting down, having communion, fellowship. So friends, kids, no, I, you know, Paul didn't have to share this, but today we do in 2019. No electronics at the communion table. Seriously, no electronics at the dinner table because this is a time of intimate fellowship with family. Amen. Please, no distractions. Whoever's listening, when you sit down to a meal, I don't care if you're just with your kids or with your wife or whoever, please, no distractions. Let's commune together. Let's have fellowship, intimate fellowship, okay? Maybe the family unit today would be much stronger if we did have that intimate family communion together like we should. You know, those who are married and those who maybe have been married and maybe uh, widowers, what did you do on your first date? Somebody tell me, on your first date, what did you do? You went to eat. I know you didn't. You went for a motorcycle ride. Somebody else. <laughs> you went to eat. Yeah, but most of the time, most of the time, when you go out on your first date, you're right, you're going to go to dinner. Did we go eat? Okay. So you go to eat, right? You're going to go to a nice restaurant. You're going to somewhere. You're going to sit down. You're going to have a dinner together. You're going to commune. You're going to break bread together, right? Amen. So on that first date, you know, your conversation might not be extremely intimate. You're getting to know one another a little bit. But the second date, probably a little bit more intimate, right? You're, you're getting to know them a little bit more, a little bit better. Third date, fourth date, you know, on and on. You begin to have these dates and you, you become more intimate. You become closer over these meals, breaking bread together, fellowshipping together, right? In most people, in most cases, you know that as you continue to date, you continue to fellowship and become more intimate. Maybe it's six months, maybe it's a year, I don't know. But you reach that place in that communion fellowship where it has gotten serious, there may be an engagement, but when that happens, there's this agreement or thought, or that it should be that, okay, we have become intimate, we've become close in our communion, that you are not going to go and have that same fellowship meal with someone else. Because she's going to get jealous. She doesn't like that, right? I mean, isn't that the way it's supposed to be? You have become extremely intimate and close. And if someone would say, well, you know, we go out to eat every Friday night and Sunday night, but on Saturday night, I'm going out and have a fellowship meal with someone else, another attractive woman. So what does that, what's she going to call me? A cheater, right? A cheater or a liar. Right? I hope you can see where I'm going with this. When we have communion with God, there's that expected faithfulness. 
Just as we are not supposed to have that intimate dinner with our loved one that we're engaged with and go have another intimate dinner with another female on Saturday night, God does not want us to be having an intimate fellowship with Satan, with a demon. Deuteronomy 5, 7-10 through 10 says, You shall have no other God before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is jealous. Just like that girlfriend would be jealous, but it's even worse. God is jealous. Visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So the same principle from Deuteronomy is what Paul was sharing here in Corinthians. He said you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. You can't do it. When we partake of communion with God, we are professing to be in friendship with Him. We are professing to be in intimate communion with Him. Intimate fellowship with Him. In whose body was broken and whose blood was shed. Jesus said in Luke 6.24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Exodus 34.14 For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. So now we can see how communion fits in this passage be talking about idolatry. Because, friends, communion is the theological principle in this passage. It is communion. It is faithfulness in communion. It is being true to God and serving Him and only Him. No other. We can have no other God before us. We cannot break bread with demons and break bread with God. Because God is a jealous God. God wants our relationship with Him to be intimate with Him and Him alone. That is the highest level of communion. You know, as I, I spoke of families, it, it becomes, you know, you're not going to sit down and have the same conversation with your buddy at work as you're going to have with your wife and your children. And the communion fellowship with your wife is even going to be more intimate than with the whole family, with the children too. But that with God is the highest, the greatest communion and fellowship that we can possibly have. Because He knows our thoughts. He knows our minds. He knows, he knows us better than we know ourselves. And isn't it amazing that He still loves us? <laughs> yeah, I got head to shake in there. It is. How awesome is His love. How amazing is His grace. Amen? Amen.